This week on American Idol. Dad, West Side High Cougars, were you part of the football team? Sit down, son. I sure was. You know that old jersey led district in touchdowns my senior year. Wow. In fact, that old jersey was first team all district and led state in rushing and receiving. Old number 45 people said that no one would ever wear that jersey the same way ever again. Honey, here's the water that you wanted. Thank you, sweetheart. Why, where did you find Chip Johnson's old football jersey? I found it in Dad's closet. Oh, Chip was the star of our football team. Your dad used to tape his ankles before every game. You know, they say Chip was never really that good until I started taping his ankles. Uh, We are so glad you're here. There's actually a little bit more room in the service today. And one of the reasons is because we have about 400 people at our youth retreat this weekend. And they'll be getting on buses and coming home here in an hour or two. And we're looking forward to that and pray for their safe travel home. We are in a study called American Idols. And last week we talked about the idol called More. And as the video implied... What we want to talk about today is the great temptation we all have to be perceived as successful. And so let me begin with the story of the bush pilot that flew into the deep forest of northern Canada to pick up two hunters he had left a week earlier. And they were waiting at the designated point, each beside the large carcass of a huge moose. Well, the pilot immediately said, now, fellas, we cannot get both of those animals on this plane. It's too small. It can't carry that much weight. But they protested and said, well, now, last year we put both of our moose on the plane, and it was no bigger than this plane. And we, the pilot said, well, if you did it last year, we'll try it this year. So they took off, but immediately the plane began to struggle with the weight. It uh, began to flounder, and just a few miles after takeoff, it crashed into the Canadian forest. And they struggled and got out of the wreckage, and one hunter said to the other, Where do you think we are? And the second said, Oh, I think we're about a half mile past where we crashed last year. (laughs) And that goofy story has a moral. And the moral is... No matter how successful you want to appear to be or how successful you think you really are, are you truly a success if in the end you don't wind up where you need to be? See, this is the question that Jesus would ask a culture that worships at the idol of success. But that's not to say that Jesus condemns the quest for success. You see, success is a laudable goal. But it makes a pitiful God. And to understand the difference, we have to delineate between some myths and some truths. So let's begin with a couple of popular but errant myths about success. And the first is that success confers greatness. You see, what ultimately drives people to bow at the idol of success is the longing for significance. We all have this deep desire to believe our lives matter. I want to do more with my life than just keep the grass cut and stay out of jail. And so we're told that if we can achieve 
greatness, then our lives really counted for something. But it's false worship because it's based on a false premise. And the premise is that great atness is the same thing as greatness. You see, what we call success in our culture is really great atness. You're great at throwing a football. You're great at modeling a swimsuit. You're great at making sales. You're great at running a company. He's great at knowing the market. She's great at designing software. He's great at acting. She's great at writing poetry. And we say, that's greatness. No, it's great atness. And it's not the same thing. And there are significant problems with the pursuit of great atness. For one, a whole lot of us are going to find it unattainable. There are some of us who are never going to be great at anything the world really values. And the other problem is not only is it unattainable for some, but for the rest it's unsustainable. Because someone's going to come along when you get a little older that throws the football farther or wears the swimsuit a little better or makes a few more sales or understands the market a little more precisely. And you can't sustain great aptness. But the biggest problem is that when you finally get to what you call success, you're great at something, you find that it's ultimately unsatisfying. Lee Strobel, who's written the popular books Case for Christ and Case for Faith, comes from a background of unbelief. He was an agnostic. He was an award-winning journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He was, by the world's measure, a success. He had a number of headlines. He had won a number of awards. Well, what started his journey to faith, he says, was one day he was in the basement of the Chicago Tribune. This is before computers. And he was needing to find a story he had written a year earlier for a story he was working on. And the lady took him to a file cabinet. And she opened it up, and inside were neatly folded copies of all the stories he'd ever written. And he said, it just hit me. This is the sum of my life's work. This is what I'm killing myself for. This is what I'm spending time away from my family for. For a bunch of folded papers already turning yellow in a file cabinet in the basement of a big building. You see, great success doesn't guarantee a great life. So it's a myth that success confers greatness. And the next myth is that Jesus condemns greatness. I don't believe God created us to long for mediocrity. We weren't designed to be satisfied living lives of little significance. And so Jesus said it is all right to want to be great. But it is all wrong to define greatness the way the world does. He said in Mark 10 and in verse 43, whoever wants to be great among you, it's not a wrong desire, but he says to do it, you must be a servant. And so the problem's not the desire, it's the way that you measure it. Robert Roberts has a story, I think, that illustrates the point well. About a fourth grade class that during recess played a game called Balloon Stomp. You may have seen this game. Each child has a balloon tied to their ankle. And at the 
the beginning of the game, the goal is to go out there and stomp on anyone else's balloon but protect your own. And so at the end of the game, a winner is clearly defined. The last person whose balloon has not been stomped is the winner. When you think about it, it is a very Darwinian game. And fourth graders can be very Darwinian. So it was survival of the fittest, no holds barred. And after a few moments, after much intimidation and a few tears, there were a clear winner and everybody else was losers. And a bunch of people left the room not feeling too good about themselves. But then a second group came into play. This class was from the special needs class. They were uh, developmentally challenged. And though they tied the balloons to their ankles and an observer would say, Oh no, these children, how are they going to handle the humiliation of getting their balloon stomped? But the problem, if it was a problem, was that they didn't quite understand the rules of the game. See, they didn't think the goal of the game was to stomp everybody's balloon but keep yours unstomped. They thought the goal of the game was to help each other stomp the balloons. And so one child would hold his balloon while his friend would stomp it. And then the friend would hold his balloon so the other child could stomp it. And at the end, they had stomped all the balloons. And then they all stood up and started clapping and cheering. Instead of playing against each other, they played with each other. They devised a brilliant alternative scoring system. And so the question you've got to ask is, who played the game right and who played the game wrong? And the answer completely depends on how you keep score. You see, you define success consistent with the way you keep score in life. Your life, your passions, what you spend your time and your money on, your priorities, your values are all directed by your scoring system for life. And what Jesus does is call into question the way most of us are keeping score. Let me give you an example in Luke chapter 12. And in verse 16, he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store up all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Now this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich Toward God. You see what we want to know this morning is how can we keep score. So that success is a goal. But it's not a God. And so Jesus says here's two things about success you've got to know. Number one if you want to be a success in life you've got to be rich toward God. 
How can you consider any life a success? And I don't care how great they were at anything. How can you consider their life a success if in the end, the sum total of their entire life's efforts are incinerated? If everything they spent their life to do gets burned up, how can that life be a success? See, Jesus is boldly challenging our scoring system. A system, by the way, that is reflected in our investment strategies. And I know in the last few weeks, we've all been rethinking our investment strategies. And we need to hear Jesus ask a question of any of them. Matthew chapter 6. Don't store up treasures here on earth where they can be eaten by moths and get rusty. And where thieves break in and steal, store your treasures in heaven where they will never become moth-eaten or rusty and where they will be safe from thieves. You see, Jesus is asking the question, why do you keep score by seeing who can stockpile the most stuff that you can't keep anyway? Doesn't that seem like a rather foolish scoring system? Jesus says, rather than spending your life seeing what you can do that will go down in history, why don't you see what you can do that will go on for eternity? For example, do you realize every time you engage in authentic worship, you put treasure in heaven? Every time you fully focus on God... You stop worrying about what anybody around you is going to think or say. And you just engage in His praise. You're putting treasure in heaven. Every time you do the hard work of character development. And you make serious sacrifices to improve your character. To be more Christ-like. You're putting treasure in heaven. Every time you sacrifice your money and your time so that more people around the world can hear about the name of Jesus, you're putting treasure in heaven. Every time you help somebody who can't help you back, even if nobody ever notices and you never get a single bit of praise for it, you're putting treasure in heaven. And when the game is over, All that's going to matter is the score that God gives you. And so I was delighted a couple of years ago when I was watching the Super Bowl, the year that the Indianapolis Colts won. And the head coach of the Colts, his name is Tony Dungy, realized, he said in his book that he wrote afterwards, about 45 seconds left in the game, the Colts are going to win. And he said it dawned on him, In a few moments, I'm going to have 30 seconds to say something to 100 million people. And he said, it's great to win the Super Bowl. But it's certainly not the most important thing in my life. You can have it all and not have anything if you don't have the Lord in your life. Success is a pitiful God. But it's a laudable goal if you can use it to point other people to the true God. 
Which, by the way, leads right into the second thing Jesus said about success. That you need to be rich toward God, and if you want to have a great life, be rich toward people. He was asked one time, well, what is the great commandment? If, I, if God keeps score, what does God call great? Out of all the things God said, what's the one thing that is great? And notice, he was asked for one answer, and he gave two. Because the only way to answer the question was to give two answers. He said, here it is. You've got to love God with all you've got. But you've got to know you can't love God unless you love people. You can't love who you don't see if you don't love who you do see. So here's the answer to your question of what great is to God. Love God. Love people. The surest way to be a success in the Father's eyes is to bless His other children. And so Jesus defines greatness as the willingness to be the least for the sake of another person. This is a tough thing to grasp. It's not in our fleshly nature to believe greatness comes from being less. And so one time on the road, he hears his disciples talking. And when he turns around, they stop talking. So he asked them, look in Mark 9 with me. What were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer. Because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12 disciples over to him. And then he said, anyone who wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Now, why is that greatness? Well, because people are the only things you can give your life to that last forever. Love God. Love people. Everything else is just commentary. Now, there's two really cool implications if you grasp what Jesus has said about success. See, number one is that every day there are opportunities for greatness. Every single day you have a chance to do something God thinks is great. He told a story about this guy going down a road and he got mugged and laid in a ditch. And this priest walks by. But he was busy, so he left him in a ditch. And a Levite walks by and did the same thing. Now, the truth of the matter is, they were probably great at what they did. They were probably great at running church and doing sacrifices and the whole thing. They were probably great at that. But they weren't great. Because the guy's still in the ditch. And then the Samaritan comes along and he invests himself and he spends his money and he spends his time to bless this fella. And we call him the good Samaritan. No. According to Jesus, he's the great Samaritan. Because he did what you and I have a chance to do almost every single day. Bless another person that everybody else is going past. See, every day you got a chance to be great. And not only that, but anybody can do this. Everybody can be great. Even those of us who struggle with great atness. I guarantee you at my funeral, they're not going to say I was great at anything the world calls important. But that doesn't mean I can't spend my life invested in greatness. Martin Luther King Jr. was right. Everybody can be great. Because everybody can serve. 
You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. See, greatness is not a skill set. Greatness is a choice. And anybody can make it. So I ask you this morning, what are you doing with your life that is truly great? What are we going to do in the short amount of time we have left that's going to outlive us? Jesus defines greatness as leveraging your great atness to bless other people. Some of you that are older remember the name of Marian Anderson, one of the greatest voices this country ever produced. Toscanini said a voice like hers comes along once a century. And she was asked, what was the greatest moment in your life? Now she could have said, the night I became the first African-American to sing with the uh, Metropolitan Philharmonic Opera House in New York. She could have said, the day I published my autobiography and it became a national bestseller. She could have said, the day I was appointed a delegate of the United States to the United Nations. She could have said, the day I sang a private concert for the President and the King and Queen of England. She could have even said, the day I received the coveted Presidential Medal of Freedom. She said... Greatest moment of my life was the day I said to my mama, Mama, you don't have to take in washing anymore. Let me tell you why Byron Nelson was one of my heroes. Now, Byron was great at golf. I know something about golf. He may have been the greatest ever at golf. But that's not why this auditorium was filled at his funeral. It was filled because he leveraged his great aptness to do great things for other people. You can all be great. Now, you may not be great at what the world calls important, but you might be great at listening. You might be great at relating to teenagers. You might be great at noticing when somebody's hurting. You might be great at giving, even when you have little to give. It's not wrong to want to be great. It's not even wrong to want to be great at. As long as your motive for success is servanthood. But any other desire or reason to want to be successful, according to Jesus, is flirting with idolatry. Einstein, late in his life, had two pictures on his wall of his office of two scientists, Maxwell and Newton. He took them down. He put up pictures of Gandhi and Schweitzer. He said, it's time to replace the image of success with the image of service. Jesus says the path to success is all downhill. 
It goes against the grain of the culture. But this is the law of the kingdom. Even the king wasn't exempt. Why was Jesus great in the eyes of God? Because though he counted himself equal to God, he didn't consider that something to be grasped. He emptied himself. He became a man. And and being found in human form, he became servant. He doesn't just talk this, folks. He lived it. And he calls his disciples to downward mobility. It's idolatry to believe we're going to change the world from the top down. No, it's Christianity to say we're going to make a difference in the world from the bottom up with a reborn community of servant people. And so let me give you one more example. There's two pictures you're about to see on the screen. All the sports fans in this room will recognize the man there. Put the pictures up, please. Well, I'm going to pretend they're up and they may get there later. Last night on one side, you saw Danny Werfel. And all the uh, sports fans remember his name. A few years ago, he won the Heisman Trophy. And the picture was of him standing behind that trophy. The epitome of sports success. His team won the national championship. He was about to be drafted into the National Football League. By every measure that the world uses, he had won the game. He had scored well. But on the other side of the picture was Danny Warfel surrounded by a number of young African-American men. See, Danny didn't do that well in the National Football League. He played for about four teams over seven years. Never really achieved greatness or great atness. His last season was with the New Orleans Saints, and he got involved in a ministry in downtown New Orleans called Desire Street Ministries, trying to help poor children escape poverty through education and through faith. And he said, I would go to practice, and there was a certain place. If you turn to the left, you go to the Saints uh, practice facility. If you turn to the right, you go to the ministry. And I found myself that last season, I kept wanting to turn right when I was supposed to turn left. So he retired early. He had other offers to play. But his wife and he bought a house in New Orleans and began to work with those kids. They fell in love with those kids. He said, don't get me wrong. I've had a lot of success in athletics. And I'm very grateful for that. But is it our goal in life to be successful or to be significant? I walked away from competitive athletics to do this. Now, athletics gives me a platform to reach out to people. And then Katrina hit. His house was totally destroyed. The ministry was totally destroyed. They had 192 kids in that ministry. They never even found all of them. But Danny Werfel was able to get 70% of those kids and literally move them to Florida to keep them in school and to escape the hardship there. And then he found in the most amazing thing that he was uniquely equipped to help tell the story and raise money for that school because he had been great at something. He said, I've experienced a lot of success in my life, especially as a football player, and yet I believe that part of the reason for that was put to put me in a position to serve in the way that I'm able to now. 
And the irony of the storm and all the opportunities have come up because of my past. I really believe I even threw touchdowns a bunch at one point in my life for such a time as this. It put me in a position to help people through this crisis. He went on to say, I really think the standard American definition of success has to do with how you can serve yourself of what you've accomplished. But the beauty of significance is how you can make an impact on others. So look at those two pictures. And let me ask you a simple question. Which picture most reflects success? You see, it all depends on how you keep score. Be very wary of the call to climb the ladder of what the world calls success. Because if you do, you may just pass Jesus going the other way. Let's pray about this. Father, we, uh, we ask you to open up our hearts and our minds today to a new understanding of what greatness really is. There's such incredible pressure in this culture to applaud and to worship great atness. But help us today, Father, to hear Jesus call us to know the difference. To hear Jesus call us to rethink how we keep score. And I'm thankful, Father, that you have filled this room with people that really are great at a lot of things. But fill them with passion, God, to leverage their great atmosphere to do what Jesus would call great. Help us to be wary, Father, of the idol of climbing the ladder. It's hard to stay on your knees. When you're on a ladder. And it's impossible to wash somebody's feet. And so help us today to hear. What Jesus says. For his glory we ask it. Amen. Usually I ask you to stand and sing a song after I speak. But today I'm going to ask you to remain seated. We're going to sing a song that just emphasizes this message. And as you sing that song, I just want you to ask yourself, how have I been keeping score? Do I need to recalibrate and change the way I'm keeping score? Now, while we sing this song, if you feel God tugging you today to come to Christ, if you feel conviction that this is my day to become a Christian, Come down to the front. Just get up where you're standing. People will let you out. Just walk down to the front. We'll baptize you into Jesus today. But for the rest of you, I want you to respond right where you're sitting as you think hard about the words.